0: Welcome, everybody, to the latest edition of Collectively Speaking. This is a a podcast series where I get to sit down with different members of the LDN Collective and ask them more about what they do and how they got into it in the first place. And really, we're talking about the big issues in the built environment. And the great thing about the Collective is we have lots of people with different specialisms but when we come together as a group, we like to be able to look at things more broadly and holistically. Really grateful to uh, Dar Group for being in their offices and I'm going to be speaking to Andy Stanton who is of Introba, who are our experts in uh, sustainability. Sustainability and mechanical electrical engineering has always been something that's been quite niche and specialist input at the table. But it's increasingly now at the forefront of really driving everything that that we do and and the only way we can achieve our net zero ambitions as a country and and do that quickly, whether it's new buildings or existing buildings. So I'm really interested to hear from Andy about that and where things are going in the future. Andy, I know that you have had a really interesting uh, journey in your professional life in terms of having previously worked at Transport for London, or Places for London, as it's now called, and now obviously working in a, uh, the private sector with Introba. Tell us a bit more about you know your background, uh, how you got here, and what you're up to at the moment, and about Introba and what you do. Sure. Hi,
1: Max. Thanks for asking me to come on. So um, my background, I had various starts in life and career choice, but my a very early influence was my mum, worked in conferences, a conference interpreter and brought me back some material from an energy conference in Ireland when I was probably 16 on energy efficiency and renewables. And it really kind of hit a chord with me, struck a chord. Um, So from that point though, I did some studies. I actually quit university early on and became an electrician, trained as an electrician. I ran my own business, was supported by the Prince's Trust to get going, but I always wanted to work in energy efficiency and I couldn't see it going in that direction. So I sold that after about five years and went off to study energy, mechanical engineering energy and environment at the university and uh, came back and it was really difficult to find opportunities but I actually went into local authority, um, went into a job there in energy efficiency working uh, for London Borough of Ealing who we were doing some great stuff then in energy performance contracting, renewing systems and making their schools and sports centres and public buildings more, more efficient. Uh, from there, I went on to Transport for London um, and, as you said, uh, was actually London Underground at the time and went through various changes and a really exciting time, starting as environment manager, essentially an energy manager uh, role, um, but wider remit, looking at water and waste efficiency and getting into some really interesting stuff. I, I spent 18 and a half years at TfL in the end. Uh, um but whether it was looking at buildings and making them more efficient, water usage, or even across procurement for some really interesting stuff, like from first aid supplies to data centres, and the breadth of topics covered was incredible, but give a real grounding experience, um, very rigorous in how to run business cases, so both from a financial perspective and energy saving, um, and we did some great stuff, uh, the high point being... Uh, A building in Southwark, the Palestra building where we put in a fuel cell in 2009, as well as uh, retrofitting, well it was a new building, or very new building, but retrofitting it to a very high standard. So um, I I was head of sustainable buildings and doing some interesting stuff there and decided uh, as I approached uh, a point in my life and career, why not tear up a job safe life and uh, try consulting. So um, it started with me um, doing a passive house designer course, which was really a kind of uh, an important point, a point in time. It kind of brought all the stuff I'd done previously in my career together of how to actually do integrated design in a way that brought everyone together in the project. Um, And then spent a couple of years working with a large consultancy um, and then quit that during COVID um, and decided to do a passive house project on my own house, which was really interesting and really tough through COVID and Brexit challenges and then came back into work working for a very small consultancy and then joined uh, Introva uh, six months ago as head of sustainability um, and it's been great i was really attracted to Introba, formerly elementor that had built up a really great name through the letty low energy transformation initiative that had really kind of made our name it was a great investment in collaborative work bringing together people across the industry and uh, the opportunity to be part of that
0: was really exciting. And that's where I am now. Wow, that's an uh, incredible um, a story and, and journey you've been on, Andy. And I think it, it's not possible to trust anyone as much as if they've already owned their own electrician practice and designed their own passive house. You, you, <laughs> you must definitely know what you're doing, uh, having done it all you know, for yourself and, and, and on your own. I think that that's a great education in itself. Um, but... What, what I'm also quite interested in is where you've got sort of a large-scale um, landowner like Transport for London, um, which I think is the biggest um, landowner in London, I, 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 I think I was told recently. It's probably up there, yeah. Yeah, And um, but also some of the biggest challenges around complexity in the built environment, whether you're working near a live underground station or... Working within a very tight sort of financial constraints, which obviously an organisation like that is. How are you seeing that sort of translating into practice as a consultant working on on the private sector, for example, where people are always looking for efficiencies, whether it's to do with cost efficiencies, as one of the big sort of factors in, in any sort of decision making? But equally, regardless of whether the government changed its mind about net zero, most people understand that that there is a a desperate need to do something positive in order to stop the progress of climate change. So what is it that you think in particular is Introba doing to help take clients on that journey of understanding the cost benefits of of more energy-efficient buildings So I think in Troba and formerly
1: Elementor and Integral as we were known outside of the UK, our ethos was deep green engineering and really doing things in a sort of different way and making that sustainability at the heart of what we do, whether it's sustainability driven programs or our engineering services that we provide to developers and clients. I think what I've seen over the time is that occasionally you have to pivot and tell the story in a slightly different way and sometimes it is focused on the environmental impact and sometimes, as we've seen last year, cost impact is the main driver. But what we've seen recently is a ramping up of legislation. Whether it's fast enough is uh, up for debate, I guess, but that's really forcing developers, large and small, to address what they do. So we do that through... Being, hopefully being really good at what we do and providing sound advice. And I think that's the key, is providing solutions, pragmatic solutions, but solutions that help clients navigate their way through what is, without a doubt, a complex legislative arena, but also finding ways that can benefit and work in both ways. So although that can't work all the time, to have your cake and eat it, to find something that meets the legislative requirements, helps clients meet their corporate objectives and gives them a better product that's efficient at the end as well.
0: So Andy, I mean, I've been in working in the built environment for almost 20 years now. And one thing I've noticed is that people who are um, specialists in, you know, things like mechanical electrical engineering are no longer being brought in sort of further down the line. They're actually being brought in much earlier on in the process, particularly by sort of more enlightened clients. And is that a trend that you see happening in your own experience, and and how is that manifesting itself in in projects in your day to day sort of working life? Coming
1: into projects relatively late is still a big challenge for us, and we're really excited to get playing with stuff early in the process so we can have a positive impact. But if we're brought in late when things like building form has already been decided, glazing, etc. But we're seeing changes in parametric modelling and something we're developing with really clever people to look at solutions, to give solutions to developers, to architects, to cost consultants, to look at how we might design things from a really early stage that gives them more freedom to design um, and gives us the ability to change that design and optimise it. And the earlier we can introduce that building physics to the process in clever ways and communicate it well, the better. And I heard someone recently say, who's done a great piece of work, a lot of work on on passive house buildings um, and saying that actually what they were excited about in the last 10 years is seeing building physics help make beautiful buildings. And I think that's a great byword of how we can get, in to build, get into Kentington's projects earlier and really influence them and change them for the better.
0: That's interesting, Andy. And so the types of projects that you're working on at the moment... Uh, are you finding that you're doing a lot more in the way of retrofit of existing buildings? That's um, one one sort of question. But also, I gather there's more um, issues and complexity around dealing with residential properties and making them more efficient than perhaps larger office type buildings. Is that something you're finding is 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 the case, and it is is changing, or uh, how how, is, how does that tend to play out? So I think first answering
1: the, the retrofit question, um, one of the things I was really lucky to do right at the start of my career journey with London Borough of then at TfL, I worked on a really large-scale retrofit programme with guaranteed savings um, and smaller projects as well, to now seeing it becoming much more of a thing. And obviously it has to be. In the buildings, I think it used to be quoted that 80% of the buildings – that will be there We are in 2050 already there. So that the opportunity to change new buildings has an effect, but it's not going to do everything. And we're seeing with stories in the news, whether that's the M&S building in Oxford Street um, or activities or um, initiatives from the City of London Corporation to focus on retrofit, a much bigger emphasis. I guess that what's great now is that because now we talk in this currency of embodied carbon and whole life carbon, those decisions that sometime maybe previously wouldn't have been taken looking at all the facts are being looked at a bit more carefully so scrutinized so is it actually good to do a massive retrofit on a building that's only been there for 10 years and whereas a building life cycle should maybe be 60 years but actually maybe individual components are requiring it to be upgraded much more frequently
0: interesting and and i suppose there's also the need for buildings to be more flexible and adaptable because obviously if 80% is already here but people are going to the office less but we have a housing crisis then you know this this need to look at um, converting uh, whether it's sort of aging office stock or 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 other types of um, you know retail outlets or what have you into homes and housing which I think other countries seem to be doing a lot more effectively. What is it that's necessarily holding us back and how are you finding it in terms of that type of a project? So we actually have got a number of projects that are converting um,
1: office use to residential and different types of residential, which is interesting. I, a big, big push on student accommodation and on, so, on accommodation that sort of blows the lines between short-stay accommodation and hotels. Um and how that's that's kind of driving the driving the market. Whether we need to do more, whether people are moving out of cities, whether those are temporary changes, it's kind of difficult for me to see that. Uh, I think one of the big challenges though, is really bringing in overheating. Uh, overheating in urban environments, well, throughout the UK, seems is is a big challenge that we're trying to design out of buildings. And coming back to the retrofit aspect, um, you know, going down that retrofit route which undoubtedly in a lot of situations will have a carbon benefit, are there other standards that we're sort of jettisoning or not focusing on as much as we should because it's a retrofit? So some of the tough standards for new builds, does those not apply to retrofits?
0: So Andy, um, one of the projects that we're uh, collaborating on with Dahl Group, I know that Introbra is um, one of the brands uh, within Dahl Group, um, is um, a really exciting project in the Royal Docks where what we're proposing is to create a whole sort of new destination that has different types of uses, whether that's sort of hospitality, leisure, sports. But the the main way of making it financially viable, uh, where the land is very constrained, yet there's a big body of water that is unused, in this case, um the Royal Victoria Dock and the Royal Albert Dock, Um, what we're proposing to do is having a lot of floating units and something like 40 of them that can then create the space uh, and the the revenue to improve the public realm and make it a destination for local people, but also for Londoners and even people coming to London from elsewhere. So one of the issues, I think, and, and, and it's one of the things I'm often challenged on is, With floating development, there's a high cost involved of creating um, the mechanical and electrical uh, um, services that are needed to make them viable, um, either to run a business from or to live in, if it's student accommodation, which we're talking about in the docs. But my argument would be, although this is kind of uh, in theory, because it's not my area of expertise, which is why I'm interested from hearing from you, is that we are in this, in a sense creating land without uh, having to uh, uh, um, absorb the high land value costs. So therefore, we we should be able to um, justify the costs of plugging it into the wider infrastructure. Is that something that you think is going to be feasible there? And is that do my um, is my does my theory stand up?
1: I mean, I think there's a number of challenges of making things work. Um, as we move to electrification, um, increasing electr- electrification demands on the grid are going to come more and more into focus and there's parts of London that are already super constrained. So making that capacity is an engineering, dealing with that is an engineering problem. As a concept, there's probably a wider issue around waste and sometimes these questions are interesting around where the investment boundary is. And so we, I looked at a project... In a similar way around sort of temporary facilities, um, fencing for events, we were looking at the embodied carbon of it in in a previous role, in fact. Um, And one of the things of what do people do? They buy fencing for an event and then they dispose of it and they don't do it because they want to. They don't have storage. So if by changing the ownership model of that, you can lease fencing, actually suddenly it becomes someone else's problem and you buy it when you need it. So that might not be the answer here, but perhaps looking at the problems in a slightly different way, where there's a requirement for infrastructure that may not be used all the time, or that is temporary, that, that could be there could be innovative ways to find around it. And certainly, if that development is key to unlocking the potential of, a, of an area, then we need to look at different ways. We're a constrained land area. So if innovative ways in a whole life cycle way can address all of the issues, without pushing it on to someone else's
0: problem then surely then that's got to be got to be a good thing. Well that's that's good to hear Andy and uh, you know I'd love for this to be a sort of test bed in many ways for something that could then be applied to other cities all of which are experiencing the same issues around um, increasing population constraints of land availability and um, and sea level rises as well and, and, and and more increased flood risk of all of which start start you going down the route of thinking about floating development. And uh, in terms of what may be lying ahead in the medium to long term, it's it would be good to sort of use the raw docks as a sort of test bed for, for this.
1: So different sectors face different challenges, residential buildings and commercial buildings um, in particular. And I think really the big focus on residential has been brought into focus with the sharp increases in utility costs and on overheating, and traditionally where those issues can be dealt with a bit more easily in commercial buildings is where they come into sharp focus uh, for residential developments. Um, Again, it depends who's paying the bills, and in some developments where we're seeing student accommodation or those type of models where they're all inclusive, then all of a sudden the developers are having to think a little bit more about it because it directly affects their bottom line. What we need to tackle both of those and what those uh, building type having have in common in fact all building types is about how we analyze energy use and the growing move to a compliance based approach under building regulations but actually looking at operational energy in a more rigorous way which is something that's growing about using energy use indicators or EUIs we really need a big uptake of that so that it's a real challenge to us as designers to actually be accountable for what we design and have some relationship or much stronger relationship between how buildings are designed and how they're performed, both from an environmental perspective and what those buildings will
0: cost to run for their owners, and in terms of emissions. Interesting. Tell us a bit more about the um, energy use indicators. Is that something that is a particular system that can be introduced into any building, or is it something that's wider than just one building? How does that work? So energy use indicators are
1: something that's so beautifully simple, and hopefully I'll explain it in a simple way. That's a challenge to me. But really, it gives you a figure of energy per square metre for a building. The theory being you have a figure of energy per square meters. When that building or project is complete, you multiply that figure by the area that you have, and that translates to your energy bill. And it's radically different different from what we do now because our building regulations compliance is based on notional models and theoretical targets, but doesn't actually re- relate to in-use um, operational energy. So by giving these energy use indicators, it brings a robustness to the design that can't be just designing to tick a box and meet legislation, but actually is very output focused. And what's great is to see the developments in London uh, from the GLA around BCN. scene. Um, which has been around for a couple of years now, where developers actually have to report on the performance of their projects for uh, five years after completion. So it's kind of bringing all the stuff we have together in in a nice way that actually, okay, we've promised this stuff, we've made commitments under planning, we've looked at designs, but actually how does it work in practice and for a period long enough to demonstrate whether that's been a success or not.
0: Well, okay. Oh, well, that's... um... You learn something every day that's very interesting do you think that's also being driven by investment being more focused on esg so having these sort of indicators that can apply and and be measured and and tested can help get investment in from you know institutional funds that that need to be demonstrating that they are delivering on their net zero commitments or
1: yeah Talking about the investment side is really interesting because actually it's where we're seeing some some interesting movements. So something called CREM, which is the Carbon Risk Rating Environmental Method. It's an acronym and I've probably remembered it wrong. Um, but it's a, a form of analysis of looking at portfolio of buildings and in terms of their carbon impact and whether those investments or assets will become stranded. So you look at your portfolio or your building um, and how those emissions will pan out. with a 2050 timescale and actually it looks at it and relates to an EUI so it brings that really nicely together and so investors or portfolio holders can look at their portfolio and say okay is this investment or portfolio going to be stranded and by when and in which case what do I need to do now or in the next few years to improve it to ensure that doesn't happen so it's actually for the probably the first time that I can remember of something from the investment community of a benchmarking scheme or a rating scheme that's labelled ESG actually directly having an impact in a very positive way on how buildings are built or retrofitted.
0: So Andy, there's um, a question that I've uh, put a few of our members on the spot with and I'm particularly interested to hear your response and it always produces um, uh, uh, intriguing results but If you were to describe yourself as either um, one of these particular types of people, would you say you are uh, more of an agitator, an activator, an ambassador or a protector in what you do? Wow. Um, I'm going to give a politician's answer, I think,
1: and say a combination of all of those. And I think the particular challenge for working in sustainability is that you have to be a combination of all of those. Um, In some cases, because... We're the most, one of the most traditional industries in the built environment. We're really slow to innovate and change things. And so sometimes the level of agitation is really needed. Sometimes people just need that little push or that spark to activate stuff, I guess. In other situations, you absolutely need to be an ambassador. And the fourth one I've forgotten. Protector. Protector, there you go. And sometimes a protector as well, because what you are doing is protecting a lot of the times, whether we're protecting um Third parties or stakeholders that you're influencing designs for or the planet
0: or the planet indeed yeah brilliant Andy so just to sort of finish off then what what's next for you and in terms of where things are going within trobo and 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 sustainability as a as a discipline where do you see see yourself sort of being active in the next sort of five ten fifteen years time so
1: I think what's really exciting at the moment, and especially for, for us as Introba, formerly Elementa, is bringing through the work that we've done on advocacy and collaboration. And I think it's super important. And the people that we work with on a regular basis, whether that's part of LDN Collective or wider um, group of colleagues, is that actually the problems we're dealing with and facing with facing are so complex and difficult that no one has all the answers. So collaboration is absolutely necessary uh, otherwise we won't solve some of these problems so an open approach to that I see some of the new developments need a different level of, in, of uh, involvement and participation and I mentioned some of the schemes around disclosure I think this is going to be the real disruptor the real change and hopefully we will see that happening so that buildings have traditionally been able to survive on PR alone and shiny stories in, in magazines and online But actually, as we see more disclosure, we'll have to get better at our jobs. Contractors have to get better in their jobs and actually delivering what's been promised. And bringing that bit of pragmatism, hopefully, I think having with my background of working as a consultant and as a contractor and with the public sector as a client can hopefully bring that pragmatism to what we do and continue some of the great work we've done and great projects we've done.
0: Well, thank you very much Andy, that's been uh, a fascinating conversation and um, great to hear from somebody who uh, has uh, in their lifetime been an electrician, designed their own passive house, uh, worked for Transport for London uh, and now sort of working across the board including uh, academia and teaching um, and somebody who is all four of the agitator, activator, ambassador and protector, which is equally impressive. but yeah, great, great to know you and be working with you, Andy, and I look forward to doing more, more of that. Brilliant, thanks, Max, and thanks for having me on.